Okay, so uh, welcome everybody. This is another episode of MedTech Trends. I'm your host, Dorian. Uh, today we've got with us Raphael Gottlieb, who is a, a passionate patient advocate and medical researcher. Now, Raphael is the founder of Precare Inc., which is an innovative web-based platform providing free evidence-based health education for patient needs. It consists of engaged, engaging animated uh, guides available in 20 languages, which uh, reduces dependency on printed media while standardizing and centralizing online information. So welcome, Raphael. Thank you for having me, Dorian. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, okay, so I thought maybe today we could start off with um, just a really simple question. You know, what what was the the cha the challenge that you guys identified uh, before creating uh, Precare, and then we'll we'll get get into what the actual uh, service is and how it works. Perfect. Yeah. So thank you for introducing it. It's very you did it justice. Um, so the idea is, yeah, that we're really a patient education platform because um, for the majority of my life, I've been volunteering at hospitals working with cancer patients. And that really evolved into a passion for improving patient care. And what I noticed is that communication is often a huge issue and a hurdle that clinicians have to overcome with patients from different ethnicities, um, different educational levels, language barriers, things of that nature. Um, so that led me to really um, examine the way doctors make decisions and the way that medical decision-making occurs because medical errors are actually the third leading cause of death in North America. And they account for over 250,000 deaths a year in the United States, 28,000 deaths in Canada where I live. And the idea is that a lot of them are not due to a lack of knowledge or lack of experience or expertise but rather to poor decision-making and communication barriers. So that really led me to explore, as I was saying during my, my thesis in experimental surgery, how doctors make decisions and how they communicate with patients. And what we realized during the research is that patient education is a huge problem because patients don't necessarily participate in their care and therefore they're not participating in the shared decision-making, which is causing them to really not retain a lot of information. So there's a lot of like, you know, research that has been done and some of it shows that like patients forgot to 80% of the information provided to them in their clinical visits and half of what they remember is misremembered. So it's just the idea that we found that the current standard of printed media and patient education is inefficient because it stretches human resources. Printed media gets outdated very quickly and sort of has a low shelf life. It gets, it's bad for the environment. Um, there's limited language diversity and limited patient feedback and engagement. So that's really where we came up with the concept of creating very simple audiovisuals and trying to provide them in 20 languages, trying to provide them as animations, as people retain more information when they, they do obtain audiovisuals compared to just text. So it's really using psychology to deliver a message in the best way and try to empower patients to get involved so they could be part of the shared decision making and at the end of the day you know make healthcare better for everyone while reducing medical errors i didn't even realize just how much of an impact uh those kind of medical errors had on um i guess hospital related uh deaths but it's a, it's a huge impact we're talking like hundreds of thousands of people um being impacted by this and, and a lot of this is avoidable by you know being able to provide better communication, better avenues for communication between physicians and patients. 
So a lot of avoidable deaths there and injuries. For sure. So like the, what I was doing during my research is actually assessing how doctors make decisions and whether it's a crisis or non-crisis situation, how our brains think and, you know, kind of like the cognitive pitfalls that we fall into. It's just the idea of how do we cater education to make better decision makers, which is a huge thing to kind of like take heads on, head on. And we're actually just focusing on the patient education element because that's really easy. It makes people better off and it can reduce a significant amount of those medical errors before, you know, taking on how people think and changing the whole culture of education, especially in medicine where it has been relatively stagnant for, you know, the past three, four decades, but things are changing, whether it's demographics of people applying to medical schools, whether it's the demographics of, uh, whether it's the changes in technology and not, and then not necessarily being implemented into, into the curricular of medical school. So there's a lot of things to fix in healthcare, which is why I think podcasts like yours bring attention to med tech and, you know, technology's implementation. Um, at the end of the day, when it comes to decision-making and empowering people, we really thought that the simplest way is to really just get patient engaged and empowered to participate in their care. And at least that will make, you know, the, the experience they have a little better off. Yeah, you, you touched on a lot of really uh, important topics there. So we'll get into Sorry, you know, what, what, no, that's awesome. I, I love this stuff. Um, so we'll get into what pre-care is and, and how it functions next. But I'm, I'm also really curious right before we get into that, um, you know, this idea of it's one thing to just receive information. Um, it's a very different thing to, uh, to internalize it and to process it. And anytime we, we do that, especially with something like medical information that has a direct impact on our health. And then we're also talking about, you know, what are the different filters that people have in terms of how they interpret that information? And a big part of that is your cultural background, um, uh, your, your socioeconomic status, and, and a bunch of other things that, it, the, that affect the way that you perceive that information and how you respond to it too. So I wonder if I can, if I can get your, your take, maybe even like in, in simple terms, but, you know, is, um, you know, speaking of communication, is there the, you know, the cultural differences that people have, especially in a very, you know, multicultural society? Um, as, a, as a physician, can you really interact with everybody in, in the same way? Or do you really have to be able to cater that information to, to different audiences, specific audiences, knowing that culture plays a big part in how they uh, react to it? So it's just the idea that um, you really do need to customize your care to every patient. But that's very difficult for physicians that, you know, are billing by the hour, by the patient, or just have a ton of different things on their mind that they have to get through. And it ends up that the nurse does most of the talking to the patient, but then the nurse doesn't necessarily communicate what the doctor, to the doctor, what they shared. So sometimes there's a gap in shared information. And you also have doctors, the way doctors process information, right? So if you go into the ER and you have abdominal pain, pain in your stomach, a good doctor might think of five, six different alternatives before trying to hyper-focus on one, as opposed to another doctor that's maybe a little bit more, uh, more like newer to the field that will just by use a cognitive bias and say, okay, I've seen this happen a thousand times before. It's most likely appendicitis or whatever he's going to assess it as, right? But he won't think of this 10% where it could be something else and then you might be misdiagnosed. So it's just the idea that if you as a patient freak out because you have abdominal pain and the nurse asks you all these questions but you didn't necessarily retain all the information, 
you communicate with a doctor, you don't deliver the information that would make your care like the best off, you could actually miscommunicate with the doctor and kind of like hyper-focus on one negative thing that the nurse said, and that will actually change the care, the trajectory of your care. So if you're a nervous patient and I'm a patient that doesn't necessarily understand what I have, and then person C is a patient that has some kind of, you know, scientific education and understands their comorbidities and all those different things that like play into it, all three of us might get significantly different care just based on the way we interact with the healthcare system and the way it interacts with us. So just the idea that if you come from different backgrounds, different religions, different anything, it could really change and that could affect your care trajectory. And vulnerable communities are usually those that are immigrant populations or those that are less privileged and they tend to be most of the adverse, adverse medical errors that occur, right? So it's just that like you need to be able to approach every patient for who they are and what they bring to the table but it's very difficult as human beings to not go to cognitive shortcuts and assess people based on what you've seen, which is like, like a heuristic bias, right? So it's just the idea that doctors need to kind of like think of more alternatives before jumping to one that they, they've seen many times before. And patients need to be able to participate and prepare for their medical, like whether it's surgeries, prepare well, understand what's, what's going to happen, be less anxious about it, be more empowered about it. So it really, like, there's a lot, sorry, there's a lot of things to change. And from a patient perspective, coming from different, um, different backgrounds and different kind of, like, even in the States, like different healthcare plans that might provide you less time with a healthcare professional, you really need to optimize the way or optimize the way that you come to, um, that clinical visit or that emergency room or that surgical visit and be as empowered as you can because that will make your care better off. This whole topic, I mean, it's a, it'll, it could branch yourself into a tangent. That's, that's a whole conversation, a separate conversation that we had on that. But, you know, hence the need for, um, you know, services and technologies that can help facilitate that decision-making process that's really catered to each and every patient. Um, and, I, and I think that that's a nice kind of segue into what pre-care is and, and how it works. And I'm wondering, you know, what sparked the idea um, that flourished into, into precare.ca? So it's really just being able to provide the best information we can in the simplest format. So how do you educate patients in this, with the simplicity of a WebMD, but with the more engaging visuals and that are evidence-based that you know, doctors can recommend patients to watch or doctors could actually provide to patients rather than like printed pamphlets that are outdated or provide something that's in their own language that's trustworthy. So how do you create a network of trustworthy information online you collaborate with the best experts, you know, internationally, and you really work on every guide to make sure that it caters to that specific population that, you know, whether it's kind of like talking about what is HPV and what are the vaccines associated with it. And now during COVID, we've done a whole bunch of stuff for like mental health during COVID, COVID for oncology patients, for cancer patients, like how they need to prepare. So anytime there's a vulnerable community, how can we help empower them and educate them and kind of give them something that they can go back to 
and watch and rewatch and share with family members and really prepare just so they don't rely on that one visit that they're very anxious for. And that's the visit that they need to remember everything and what's going to happen when they wake up from their surgery and when can they go home and what they can eat and what they can't eat. So really just reduce any, um, any kind of like vulnerabilities in the care trajectory from a patient point of view. So that's where we came up with pre-care and that's the idea of like helping vulnerable communities is really where we think that, you know, providing it in a lot of different languages makes a lot of good sense. By the way, for anyone uh, watching, uh, you can go on the website, it's precare.ca. Uh, it's a great service. There's al already a lot of uh, great content on there um, in, in the way of uh, patient education for, you know, targeted specific medical procedures and uh, very specific content. So it's a great resource. And I know you guys have a, a growing library of, of content. Precare is a web-based platform for patient education. People are known to retain up to 85% more information as audiovisuals compared to text. This is why our team of medical experts produce patient-oriented information as animated videos, available for free in the 20 most common languages spoken in the world. We have created over 150 animations covering 25 medical fields. We provide patients with evidence-based information, which has been shown to reduce anxiety, pain, and length of hospital stay. Our guides focus on educating patients by using simple visuals in order to prepare them for their clinical visits, medical treatments, surgical procedures, and recovery processes. The main goal is to empower the patient population with quality information, allowing everyone to access the animations from anywhere in the world at any time, free of charge. Scientific development is also at the core of pre-care, which is why we have eight ongoing original studies assessing the quantitative and qualitative impact of visual guides. Tous nos guides sont également disponibles en français et dans 20 langues supplémentaires gratuites pour tous. Au nom de l'équipe Pricare, nous vous remercions pour cette formidable opportunité. What I wanted to focus on for just a second, so you've described it as it's a it's an intuitive free patient education platform. And the great thing about this, and you mentioned like WebMD, so WebMD is, it, it's, it's a huge website. Um, it's got tons of, of content, uh, lots of text-based information, um, but it's not, it, it's difficult to navigate. It, there's a lot, there's still a lot of information on there and it's not very interactive. It's not, it's not always intuitive. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, the, the idea of kind of going from text-based content to um, video content that is also written and um, curated by professionals within each content area uh, of expertise. That, that I think that's a significant, you know, bit of progress in and of itself. What's the process for distilling all this crazy amount of information that's available online for anybody to read um, into, you know, individual contents that are geared towards specific procedures and for specific patient populations? How, how does that work? So the idea is that everything we do is evidence-based. And what that means is that anything that was published in the scientific literature from a protocol point of view for a specific like surgery, our team and our collaborators, our experts in the field will review. So there will be a preliminary review where we assess all the information that's out there. We take the best standards, the, the newest protocols, and we put it together 
in terms as a literature review, I suppose. And then we start scripting it with our, you know, medical writers and advisors. And we make sure that everyone keeps being involved in the process. So it really comes out as a script that's with easy language, but also reflects the best evidence-based um, protocols. So where that differs from things like WebMD and other websites that are, you know, available online is that we really only take information from evidence-based sources as opposed to kind of like just provide advice. So that means that doctors can actually recommend it because that's where people, like that's where the pamphlets get their information. That's where kind of like anything that happens in the hospital comes from. It's really from research that has been published, that has been peer reviewed. So that's the idea of like really making it easy and accessible, reducing the barriers to accessing good literature reviewed information for patients. This is an interesting point because if you go on websites like WebMD, I don't know if that's, if it, this point kind of is specific to that service, but there's you know hundreds of, or I shouldn't say hundreds, there are countless like websites where you can get information, but a lot of them will have disclaimers at the bottom or on some page that basically says, um, you know, always talk to your physician uh, to figure out if, you know, if any of this is relevant to you. And, uh, you know, this is meant to be informative, educational, but it's not like we're not recommending this specifically for you. So by like for precare.ca, is it the, the content itself, it's evidence-based. So I think that's a, that's a leap forward from just general kind of medical information. Um, so that's definitely a, a positive of the service. But on top of that, can like, so you're saying like physicians would also be able to recommend particular videos for patients and say, this is the, this is the kind of information that you need to know to, to help with your medical condition. They can actually recommend the information in the videos. Yeah. So the idea is that like, we also have a form of a disclaimer just because we're not trying to replace the actual doctor patient, like interaction, but a physician could actually recommend it based as kind of like, um, as a point of authority that this is information that you need to know as opposed to, Hey, this is a website you can go check out, but make sure that you still follow the protocol that we provide to you because we're not sure who's, you know, admitting it or controlling it or where the information is coming from. We just know that it's popular or we just know that it has good information that you can understand, but it's not necessarily trustworthy and that's unethical for a physician to recommend or a healthcare provider. So what we try to do is really make it research-based so it can be recommended by everyone. And if you think of websites like the Mayo, the Mayo Clinic or the Cleveland Clinic, big hospitals in the United States, they have that evidence-based information, but they're also limited by languages and are text-based, right? So we try to be kind of like our own, it's its own individual platform that, rec that provides good information like Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic, but just make it at a grade six comprehension level because people retain significantly more information that way, make it through audiovisuals and provide it in different languages and kind of like as more collaborative efforts as opposed to just being under like one house of like Cleveland Clinic like doctors and Mayo Clinic doctors, which are the two best institutions in the world, right? So if you're at a level that you can understand the information, that they provide and retain it, then you might as well read and do your own research on that web, on that platform. But the majority of patients need it a little bit easier. So that's where pre-care comes in. It's a really good call out too, for sure. I mean, anybody that's ever been to a major hospital 
Um, you can go on the hospital websites, in, including um, uh, on the Canadian side as well. Um, and uh, the, their websites, you know, usually it'll be kind of split up by department and then you can, you can find some pretty good information. Um, it can be sometimes pretty technical, but basically all the major hospital systems um, that I've seen have that kind of website. And you're right, it's very difficult to digest some of that information. I mean, it, it's intentionally sort of simplified for, because anybody can go and search that information, but still it's, it's not very, it's not very actionable. It's not necessarily always intuitive. And, um, and then there's a the question of why do so many different hospital systems have their own version of whatever this thing is? Whereas, you know, the, the same procedures is pretty much the same uh, across North America. I'm generalizing a little bit, but the point is like you can, you, there, it makes sense to kind of look for this information in some kind of centralized place. And that's, and that's partially what, what a service like WebMD does is that it's, it's centralized. It's irrespective of whatever institution you go to for treatment um, or whoever your healthcare provider is, you just go there and it's just general information to, to inform yourself as a patient. Um, and you guys are going, you're taking that step one, one step further. Not to like hyper-focus on WebMD because I think it's a brilliant idea. And, you know, 25 years ago when it came out, it was revolutionary, but they do about a billion dollars in revenue a year, right? So like their whole thing is advertising. And then if you're vulnerable, if you're a vulnerable patient in 70s, 80s, and you're not necessarily tech savvy, it might just be that you accidentally click one of those advertisements because it promotes better care for you. And then all of a sudden you land on a page that's even less credible. So it's just the idea that like, you really want to try and pinpoint patients to good information, which is why the interns like the Wild Wild West and doctors just keep everything internal. But if you can create something that's kind of like not necessarily controlled by one institution, but it is a collaborative thing, then that could be a resource that people send their patients to. And then that could also be a resource that customizes things for your hospital, but keeps a standard of excellence to a certain degree, right? So we're not necessarily at a point where it's a household name or every hospital institution is using it, but it's really about building credibility, building a library and trying to help as many patients and the more guides we make, the more patients watch them, the more research we can do to assess, you know, how patients, like, um, how patients retain information, the impact of audiovisuals for patients, the impact of technology in patient education, now that our whole world is a little bit flipped upside down and patients can't really go to hospitals as frequently or in inpatient teachings. So it really is just a platform trying to provide information the best way possible and grow from it, but never actually advertise to patients or never target patients with paid ads or anything of that nature, just because that could add a whole other layer of complexity and untrustworthiness in our platform that we would never be interested in. We'll touch on um, the, the customer system, the, the customers and um, the hospital systems and clinics and, and who else uh, is involved in actually using uh, pre-care and the way that the people can be actually using the service. But I'm also curious, uh, just to kind of rewind a little bit, so the, it's an evidence-based content uh, uh, creator. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, the, the people that are actually writing the information, are they, are they clinicians? Are they researchers? And like, how big is that team? We really thrive on collaborations. So everyone that does write or does do the research are healthcare providers. Most of the time it is clinicians. 
Um, there's a lot of collaborations with nursing. There's a lot of collaborations with medical literature writers. So there's a lot of things that happen when we develop guides. The beautiful thing is that it's mostly collaborations with big departments with, you know, the department chief wants to do one thing and then he'll assign two, three physicians to work with us and we'll develop like the best guide we can. And then it will go through various steps of approval and edits before it gets recorded and transcribed and, you know, brought to uh, fruition. Um, the, the core of the team are actually uh, Dr. Senator Dogen, which is the voice and the medical, um, the medical, I guess, executive of pre-care. And then Dr. Gabriel Schnittman, which is the scientific officer of pre-care. And he also controls the animations and the visuals. So everyone in the core of the team, the team is obviously a few more members, but like they really make sure that at every level, even the animations are being done and developed by a surgeon. So everything at every level is kind of like catered to patients from a healthcare provider point of view of expertise. So the team I would say is about four or five people. There's Ben Segev that's uh, the creator, the chief creator of content that, you know, helps us with like the, the vision, the website, the graphics, all those things. But it is really just about collaborations and different positions or different clinicians wanting to develop guides and doing research projects and research projects and assessing things and, you know, publishing on the way that we, um, we make them and the results from patients and patient feedback and testimonials and improved care and like really tracking all those things. How long has, um, has pre-care uh, been uh, around for or how long has the business launched? Two years. So Two we years. launched in July 2018 and just very organic kind of like just, you know, working one guy at a time and just trying to scale it, but in a way that's sustainable and without kind of like infusions of investors or anything of that crazy ass entrepreneurship startup life. Right. So very much bootstrapped. Okay. And like customer wise, um, have you guys already uh, worked with a few uh, hospital systems or, or medical practices? We work a lot with the government of Canada. So we um, conduct, uh, we have platforms in collaborations with the Patient Safety Institute of Canada. We work with, um, I would say about 20 academic hospitals in Canada. We, um, we make content for the African Health Organization, which is, you know, a nonprofit. Uh, just really anything that can kind of like help vulnerable populations. We're mostly based in Canada. Um, we have things happening in Brazil. We have things happening in Mexico that we're helping out in. So the customers, I guess, would be over 100,000 people have access to guides at one point or another, whether, you know, for a variety of different guides. And then from partnerships with hospitals, yeah, I would say about 20. What's been some of the, the feedback that you've gotten for, um, from customers that you've worked with so far? What are they, what are they like? And then what are they kind of recommending uh, as, as things to, to improve upon? Customers is a tricky word because customers are actually healthcare providers and government uh, healthcare groups and things of that nature for the moment. Customers in terms of the end user, which is the person we care about most, is the patient, right? So the testimonials and feedback have obviously been, not obviously, but have been very flattering and positive. The idea, like, let's say you used to have in one hospital in Canada, um, a one once a week session for orthopedic patients. 
that they would come learn about their operation and it would be an hour and a half session and it would cover six different operations, right? Since then, we developed six different guides that cater to those operations and patients can watch it from home and they don't have to come in. So this outdated platform that's been running for 20 years in person needed six healthcare professionals to you know, spend an hour and a half, needed orthopedic patients that have mobility issues to come into the hospital, look for parking, kind of like listen to like different surgeries that don't necessarily apply to theirs and try and retain the information that's for them. So during those sessions, when we launched them, we actually had a lot of patient feedback and testimonials. And whether it's a patient that says like, you know, they're from India and they really understood the guides because they're able to turn it on in their language and read the subtitles and share it with their kids and like really prepare and feel like they're ready for it. Or whether it's a patient that says like they, they're going for a hip replacement and you know, mobility has been a significant issue for them. So they're so content to be able to watch it from home and they have no follow-up questions. So it's just like really kind of like you get like comments from all different fields and kind of like things that you wouldn't necessarily expect at first. Um, so from a patient point of view, they've, uh, they really like it. We've conducted research also in Brazil and in head and neck surgeries where it's ongoing, but the feedback has been 100% positive. Uh, from a clinician point of view, it's very nice for them because they get a more educated population. They get to provide a service that patients appreciate. So they feel like because it, like they feel like it's kind of like made for them or like the, their clinicians going the extra mile to provide them a guide that's more visual compared to just like a big text, like a pamphlet that, you know, has corrections in it and like extra papers just because like page six got outdated. So now you have to follow this protocol. So it's just the idea that clinicians also feel from our experience that, you know, they're providing a premium service to their patients that their patients see as a premium service. So kind of like makes the patient clinician dynamic better off. And then it standardizes the information for the anesthesiologists, for the people that are perioperative that are, you know, are providing information to the patients from 15 different faculties. So if they know that that department is collaborating with us, then they know that the dietary restrictions provided to the patients were standardized for the best practice, which is what they would ideally like to would deal with or to you know, have patients follow. So it's just the idea that you can start standardizing information and it's not just, okay, wait, did the resident yesterday that has only been on with me for a week, did he actually share the information he was meant to? Wait, did he, oh, he didn't write it in the folder in the patient file. Did they actually receive that information? Let me call the patient. Oh, they're not answering. They have their surgery in three days. Okay, we go along with it because there's a six week backlog, right? So, and then like they get to their surgery, they might've forgot something or not actually been provided information. They're going to perioperative. They're being provided information on how the anesthesiology is gonna work. They're really nervous. They're just gonna like, yes, yes, I understand. They might not understand. And there is where a complication or, you know, prolonged recovery might happen just because of a little broken telephone. So just if you can standardize the information, then clinicians are happy. And listen, we're just at the start. We, we don't have um, huge, huge numbers of data, but we're certainly getting there. And the preliminary stuff that we do have is very promising. Thanks for correcting that too. Yeah, there's, um, uh, I've had a chance to talk to a couple of, um, uh, you know, healthcare company founders and CEOs where there's this, um, 
the use of the word uh, customers um, uh, or, or accounts or, you know, those kind of business uh, terms. But, but you're right, at the end of the day, I mean, we're talking about uh, physician end users and, and patient end users. And, and ultimately, that's what the entire healthcare sector is really kind of about. It's like getting, getting physicians to, to treat patients uh, in, in the most efficient and, and practical and, and easy way possible and patients to get back to, to their normal lives and thriving. So the, the use of, it's just a term, but I think it does make a difference in the conversation. Put it this way, it's also an important term, right? You have, if you have a viable business that you want to be able to scale, you need customers, you need product, you need results, you need uh, opportunity costs that you're improving, you need all those things, right? It's just when, you, when we say customers, it's interesting because we cater to patients, but it's actually the physician or the healthcare groups are our customers. But we don't necessarily, if we bring value to our end user, then the customers, which are our collaborators, will come and want personalized guides and will want us to create platform for them and wants to create like website portals for them. And that's, again, something that we'll get to, I suppose, but like that's where our revenue comes in. So while everything is free for patients, we do customize things for healthcare institutions. And then that allows them to provide a customized offering for their specific for their patient population. And it still follows the standard guidelines. It just makes it more custom for their, for their patients. So like, let's say if you're a patient A at hospital A, you know that you need to show up to your clinic, which is located here, you have the phone numbers for the prehabilitation clinic or the perioperative clinic or your doctor or your department. And then you actually, as a healthcare provider, don't actually need to, you know, give them pamphlets just because all the information is already in the visual that they could take home, they could watch, they could print key, key, um, key slides from, or they can print like their abbreviated version of what they need to know. So it, it makes the whole thing easier and you can email, those things with the appointments and kind of go paperless and make sure that you know you can even track like when patients are watching it and what language they're watching and how many times they watched it so just really make sure that what you're communicating to them is being perceived and then you can have a better more informed conversation about it in the clinical visit or in the perioperative clinic we'll touch on the um uh, the free version content versus um the version that allows customization for particular departments and particular providers um, and what the, the business model is around that piece. Uh, but I'm also really curious because from everything that you've said so far, it always it just sounds like there's a huge potential for pre-care to impact uh, workflow as well um, within the department because there's there's a chance to um, uh, to educate patients, um, to potentially save time for from the, the provider side, you know, from have instead of having, you know, five, 10 different people explaining what the procedure is going to be like and sort of reassuring patients as they go through the the, health, the hospital or whichever uh, part of the healthcare system they're, they're accessing. Um, there's, you know, time savings that could be involved as well. And then post-procedure um, or post-discharge, there is, you know, potentially better satisfaction, uh, potentially better uh, outcomes. And, uh, and then the follow-up could also be improved as well. So there's like a, a it, it sounds to me like there's a workflow um, upside to, to doing these kinds of uh, videos as well. I guess the, the people that most benefit from the service after patients, I would like to think so, are nursing or nurses, because they're actually responsible for the majority of the education and standardization of education. And in Canada and in the United States, 
nursing is actually in high demand because there's just not enough in the system. So if you can relieve some of the burden of the systematic repetition of information from A to Z and just make sure that the nurses can better utilize their time with the patient that they do have and kind of talk to someone that already has a base foundation of the information, you're actually optimizing the workflow from that point of view, from that element. And then for residents and trainees, if you actually show them a standard of what the information that is being provided is, and then what patients need to retain, they can have a better conversation with the patient when they're taking down their history or they're asking them questions, they know what foundation the patient already understands about the procedure. So they could also you know, have a more standardized approach to it, seeing how they keep changing. It's tough to keep track of you know, what resident is communicating in the way that you would or what resident you need to re-ask the questions after they leave. So if you standardize the whole flow of information, you're most likely going to be better off as a system, as an ecosystem. That's huge implications. So I, I hadn't quite thought about it that expansive, but um, yeah, the implications I think are, are pretty big. That's pretty cool to hear. Um, all right, so so Raphael, um, so uh, getting back to this uh, to this idea, there's a, there's the free content that's available, and again for for anybody watching, uh, definitely go and you can check out precare.ca. Um, a lot of great uh, video content there. Um, anybody can kind of get up and running and, and using this type of thing right away. Uh, and then there's the, the second part of it, uh, which is the, the, the paid service that allows for providers and, and hospital systems um, to cater information to particular departments, procedures, providers. Um, let's, let's dive into what some of those distinctions are and, and what would be the, the process for people to actually um, pay for this kind of service. The whole idea is that we're really kind of planning now and growing into building portals for hospitals where they could have their customized content for their specific for their patient population and that they could have a feedback loop with their patients through the portal. So let's say if you have an orthopedic clinic that we're hosting for you online, then you can also have a pivot nurse communicate with patients so they don't actually have to come in and based on the guides, they can ask questions and you can kind of answer them depending on priority or things of that nature. So you can actually go virtual with clinics. And then for patients, it just, they could always, like any patient benefits when we do stuff with partners and pay collaborations, because that just means that we're creating more content that will become free on the platform. But it also means that patients for specific institutions can actually watch guides cater to them and that is cost saving for the for the hospital because that means that they don't have to print uh you know how to access the clinic and where to go and on the day of the surgery you need to talk to this 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 you can already have all that centralized online so we don't necessarily have a pricing regimen yet we everything we've done is more or less for free unless it's endorsed by, you know, national medical societies or we're creating a guide for a department that, you know, wants, that wants us to develop it for them and with them. So they will have a specific budget for it because that's the budget that they would allocate otherwise to their printing pamphlets and, you know, we're replacing those for them. But it really is just about growing the offering that we provide for everyone while customizing it for institutions that will make sense for them to pay for it. So the more reach we have, the more 
we're able to help society, the more we are able to help patients, the more it makes sense for healthcare institutions to customize the information for their patient population, which at the end of the day is cents on the dollar for what they are doing for patient education, patient engagement. And that's without taking into account quality of care, quality of life, and you know, reduced, potential reduced medical errors, which in Canada at least, are about $7 out of every 100 spent in the economy. You have about like 7% of the GDP going towards trying to combat medical errors or the cost of medical errors. At this point, um, you've got about 20 plus institutions that you're working with or partners that you're working with, um, 100 or so thousand um, end users that have used the, the platform um, and or visited the, the website. Um, I'm wondering what your, your vision is for, for the, I guess, the near-term future uh, for, for precare.ca. Are you looking to grow a lot of content, bring on some, um, some new partners, new institutions, um, or are you trying to uh, seek funding to turn this into something um, even grander to scale up? What are you looking to do? It really is just about creating a lot more content and, like, I guess, um, Cap capturing the potential that it has at a bootstrapping level. I think that, you know, like in 2021, we're looking to hire a few, a few more people full time and really expand the operation and be able to collaborate with partnerships internationally and really kind of like sign up, you know, a few hospitals to be able to use the portal that we will create for them. And then through research, show the value and show kind of like the, uh, cost savings and quality of life improvement and quality of care improvements. So really turn it into a scientific operation that makes sense back from back also from an economics point of view, from an administration point of view, from a patient point of view, obviously. So that's something that we are looking to do and we are actively, I guess, preparing for and starting to do. And then raising funds will be something, you know, within the next 24 months that if all goes well, will be a natural, a natural transition because we will want to scale and we will want to have a whole team of developers and we will want to be able to expand our reach and our platform and, you know, be able to cater to more communities and healthcare institutions and just be able to do a lot more cool stuff. So that's something that will come, but it's not, we're not in it for the sake of, let's scale, 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 and see how, how high we can reach. It's more like, let's do the right things at the right time, and then hope that it makes sense, hope that it's well perceived, and then from there, keep going up and up and up. Uh, the last point that you mentioned, yeah, definitely really interesting. So I've had this kind of related conversation with um, uh, a few other healthcare founders and, and CEOs, and it's this idea of when you're, when you're taking on a, a healthcare venture like this, um, it's, it's sometimes difficult to get it up and running. Um, it requires uh, quite a bit of convincing and I think in a unique way. So if we're talking about like an evidence-based uh, product or service in the healthcare space that can benefit a lot of end users, physicians, patients, and, and the hospital systems, um, you've got to generate a lot of evidence. Uh, the, you know, quote unquote kind of sales cycles for this type of venture can be quite long. Um, but on the flip side, the, the benefits can be quite huge. And, and it's really just a matter of, you know, can you put together a really strong 
um, case for using this kind of service. And a lot of that comes down to, you know, do you have the, uh, you know, the scientific proof, so to speak, to, to demonstrate that this thing really works. Um, and that's something that grows over time. Um, but the end goal for a lot of these, uh, a lot of these people is not to, you know, do the, the tech kind of, you know, crazy scaling and, and exit type of thing. That's not the, the, the path that they're on. It's really, can you provide a lot of value to, uh, to patients and providers? And that's something that shows over the long run. And, um, you know, are there a lot of people that can benefit from using this kind of tech and does it really advance healthcare in, in doing this? Um, and it kind of sounds like this is, this, you're sort of on the same path of you're working your way into building up this evidence and demonstrating that the product really works and is cost effective and benefits a lot of people uh, in the healthcare system. Um, and then the, the scaling up process might be like a gradual sort of thing, um, almost like a, like a byproduct of just offering a great service. And maybe that's a different angle than a lot of, like this is like not a traditional kind of tech company. Tech companies like, um, I, I don't know I, I, what a great example would be, but this is not like a, you know, just, uh, you know, seeking huge amounts of money for investment and growing something quick and then sort of exiting. This is a, this is something that has huge social value. Um, and, and that requires, I think, a different approach than a, a typical sort of tech tech company. It's just a general comment, but it's an interesting topic, I think, uh, in a lot of ways. The evidence part uh, in particular. The idea that there's a healthcare ecosystem and that if you try and talk about everything that's associated with the ecosystem and how you're going to affect it through a ripple effect of better patient education, then you can go on a tangent and, you know, say a hundred different things that will be impacted, but that will be overwhelming and too ambitious to chew on. But if you start scaling very, very slowly and say, okay, first, I want patient satisfaction and patient empowerment. That we already have some good proof that that's happening. Patient empowerment and patients are being happy. Patients are satisfied with the way we provide information to them. Then, okay, our providers happy with their patient like quality of like satisfaction, quality of care. Yes, they are. So that's another thing. Then, are we saving some time in printed media costs? Yes. Okay, that's a third thing. So it really is like how. How can we impact at every level, starting with the patient as the main actor in this ecosystem, but acknowledging that it has implications that are far reaching the patient quality of, you know, empowerment. Mm -hmm. So it really is just like, we would love to scale it and be a household or a hospital hold um, thing that gets integrated into every, every patient interaction. Is that realistic? I would like to think so one day. Is that realistic in the next few months, year, two years? Probably not. So it really is just about scaling it and building the foundation for a way that it can support whatever, you know, the next level will be. But it's doing it in a way that's not building a house of cards. And as you're partnering with more institutions and uh, you're having more people actually use the service, are you collecting information about, um, you know, feedback from from um, end users um, and you know the kind of information that you would need to to demonstrate its um, effectiveness and cost effectiveness is that part of the the plan we have a few ongoing research projects that you know are ethics approved and integrated within the hospital just the idea of like retaining the way and randomized uh, trials where patients get you know the the normal the norm which is a, a few printed media and kind of doctor interactions and patients are then other patient populations get to watch the animations and have the same interactions and 
preliminary results are overwhelming in favor of the multi the multi visual guides. And you know, once you start publishing something like that, then the next publication will take it a level higher and a level higher and a level higher. And soon enough, you're showing that there's actually cost savings from integration of multimedia web-based audiovisuals, and there is cost savings from improved care. And maybe you know you reduce discharge time the patients spend in the hospital, which makes the whole ecosystem better off. So there's a lot of positive that comes out of it. It's just a matter of how how you assess and prove all of it, and then at what points you capture it, and you know kind of like at what points you can improve your impact in the ecosystem. Have you guys uh, been able to publish anything yet or is there anything immediately sort of in the works uh, anticipated to be published? So we have um, three manuscripts that are um, being like sent for publication now. There are more general information about the, um, the value of audiovisual and patient education and you know a few things like in the COVID era, like how to educate cancer patients so we give a whole kind of like a breakdown of what has been done, what needs to be done, what we're doing, things of that nature. We have um, Dr. Gabriel Schnickman, which is a surgeon, conducted his thesis on free care. So the idea of providing multi-visual guides in low-income countries. So he did it in Brazil. And that is something that he's publishing in the next few weeks. So his thesis like results are very, very promising, showing you know, how patients actually benefit from the idea of being more empowered through these audiovisuals in their own native tongue and things of that nature. And then we have a few ongoing research projects that are more based in a Canadian cohort of how people perceive or how they're impacted by the guides in their healthcare trajectory. So we'll keep an eye out and hopefully you guys post uh, some of that stuff on, on the uh, Precare website uh, and on other social media as well. Um, so, um, we're, we're coming up on time, but there's a, a little bit about your, uh, the, the process of, of how you went through this, this thinking of creating uh, pre-care uh, that I wanted to get into. And, um, you'd mentioned that, um, I think this is probably, uh, relatively early on in pre-care's history. Um, you were going through one of the, um, I guess they're an accelerator program at McGill. It's the McGill Dobson Center for Entrepreneurship. And you guys ended up winning the, the social enterprise first place. Uh, prize, and I'm wondering if you can kind of take us through that. What was the the motivation for for getting into that competition, and um, was that sort of the precursor to pre-care? The competition we actually won a few weeks ago. It uh, we applied um, like about a year, a year and a half ago, but because of COVID, it just kept getting extended and extended. Um, it's the idea of how do we show through a business approach the value of what we're doing. And we decided to challenge ourselves by applying to the social impact or social enterprise track of that competition. And the idea is that it's the biggest entrepreneurship competition for sure in Quebec, if not in Canada. And it's just one of those prestigious things that if you can you know, emphasize your business case and your impact and the scalability, then you're onto something, or at least I would like to think so. So we were very proud and like fortunate to have won that. And now it is really just about the idea of how do we keep proving 
the platform or the solution from all different elements. Because for patient benefits or for the way patients interact with it, I think that's a very easy one. I think, you know, just from a humane point of view, people really enjoy it, people like it, they prefer it to printed media, that's not a hard one. From a uh, hospital ecosystem, we still need to do a lot of research to actually show tangibles, but there's a good consensus of, yes, this makes sense. From a business point of view, the fact that you don't want to advertise, the fact that you don't want big corporations or big money or whatever it is behind it doesn't really make sense. But if you actually build enough social impact, then you will end up customizing a lot of different solutions for different hospitals and become the voice of authority or, you know, the voice of reason in patient education. People will come to your platform and will want customized solutions just because if they were able to get it elsewhere, you're literally charging pennies on the dollar because that is your expertise now. So you can actually replicate things in a very efficient manner and very cost effective. So from a business point of view, it starts making sense. If you keep growing and growing and growing, people are actually utilizing it. And then from an entrepreneurship point of view, if you're able to scale the platform and kind of get the three takes on all those three components, then you have something going on. Right. So just the idea of like, how do we keep challenging ourselves to grow, but not challenge ourselves out of ego just to scale and then, you know, realize that we're now strictly a for profit. I'm really yeah. curious on that point, too. What um, what qualifies as a like a social enterprise? Anything that improve that attempts to create the most impact for society. And it's not necessarily a profit or not for profit, but it just has societal impact or societal benefits at, at its core at least that's the way i understand it but there's different definitions i mean at the end of the day you can't have a um a, you know a, a profitable uh healthcare company that also offers huge social uh benefit yeah and where i believe like you know when it came to the finalists of the social impact track we were probably one of the very few that were a for-profit as opposed to a not-for-profit but here, the more profit we're able to make, the more we can reinvest and kind of generate growth in the company. And that, you know, the more social impact we make, the more profit we make and kind of like a vicious circle that we're trying to create by maintaining the patient at the core of everything and building around it. But if you look at patient engagement pre-COVID time and patient education, it's scaling to the tens of billions over the next few years and like now it's even accelerating more right so there's a huge 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 like i guess opportunity where patients are getting more empowered and more engaged and seeking more information outside of their you know clinical visit and we want to make sure that that information is sound information that can actually be recommended to them as opposed to just searched on google and just landing on something that looks credible but might not be yeah and to that point too i mean i i can't think of another uh, resource that's as i think dedicated to this particular um niche as you guys are so and, and i find it extremely useful not not just from uh personal experience you know I, everybody at some point will end up going through the, the hospital system or clinic in one way or another so i would find this extremely useful but i'm also thinking of you know my parents and my parents generation um, how much it could help them. So I, I see huge social value to doing this and to be able to scale it too, uh, which I think is a necessary point. 
Uh, I, I wonder if you can also take me back to like over the last, you know, two, two or so years since um, Precare was founded. Is there anything that stands out to you in terms of, you know, challenges or barriers that you faced in getting this thing up and running? Um, and, you know, maybe this happened more than once, but is there anything that really kind of stands out to you as, as being something that you really had to overcome? Well, the idea is that I've heard it, you know, said once or twice in these entrepreneur, entrepreneurship talks or podcasts or different things, but it really does ring true that you actually don't have an agreement until you actually have the agreement. You don't have a project or a budget until it's actually signed. And then that's even that, at that point, it's a whole other headache. So don't rely on things just because you had one or two good interactions with someone. Make sure that you're actually planning in a realistic way and not relying on too many exterior factors because more likely than not at the beginning phases, if you're not you know, convincing someone that they will benefit from what you're doing, it could be a great idea, but like, it's not going to be on top of their uh, to-do list. So it's just the idea, like you talk to so many people that get excited. Oh yes, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do that. But it doesn't actually end up panning out. But all of a sudden you're planning because you just assumed that it was going to work because they told you it was going to work and you know, they reassured you a couple of times. So it really is just take everything with a grain of salt focus on what you're doing and don't get too distracted by things that are not concrete or, you know, signed off on in a tangible and kind of like a, um, an authoritative way. Makes sense. It makes sense. Um, and I'm sure it also helps having like a, a solid team uh, to, to work with, to back you up and to help you make decisions going forward. So um, is there anything uh, special about the, the team that you've been uh, putting together and, and the folks that you've been selecting to, to work as part of pre-care? So I already mentioned Senna and Gabriel. There are people like Dr. Jeffrey Howe. There are people like Ben Segev, which is our creator, uh, creative guy. There's just a whole bunch of friends that are involved in the day-to-day and it really is just about getting people with a similar vision because kind of like even like none of us necessarily have the exact expertise that we've developed over the past few years but it's about like having the right people and then evolving into the expertise or becoming experts in the field as opposed to having experts but are not necessarily the right fit because if you're looking at kind of like a social enterprise or if you're looking at a small business that's not looking to um, raise funds within its first year or two years or it's not looking to like be significantly profitable in the first one to two years, it's very easy for people to fall off. And then those are people that you can't come to rely on, but you can't necessarily replace them, A, because it takes too long to train, B, because the cost of, the cost of replacing would be too high, so it really is just about getting the right people. And that's something that just came really organically because these are the people I associate myself with. These are my friends. And then this is something that we all have a shared interest and an invested, I guess, passion in seeing come to fruition. So it really is just more in a sense of a passion project rather than a business in the way it operates, but it has a lot of business potential and, you know, kind of like revenue generating, um, revenue generating, um, not potential, but like, uh, I guess, ways that are very easy for us to now see. 
-hmm. So it's exciting because we're driven by the right things, but it's also exciting because we see an opportunity in it that it will generate revenue in a socially impactful way, which is the best of both worlds for us. It helps sometimes uh, to not have um, your eyesight completely on uh, just the, the end, end goal um, of turning this into, you know, a big kind of impactful social enterprise or business or, or a combination of the two. And uh, when you're talking about people that are very passionate about the product and the, the company itself um, that see themselves using it in their own practice each and every day, um, that makes a big difference in, in helping to incentivize and, and to motivate people in a way that, uh, you know, just the, the, the more traditional kind of incentives are, um, you know, lacking in, in some in some extent. So um, I definitely look forward to, to seeing you guys um, keep building pre-care uh, over the next couple of months and years, hopefully with a good, you know, influx of uh, support uh, as, as you guys need. And um, yeah, I mean, this, this is really thing that can be of huge benefit to end users, both patients and providers, um, and, and have like enormous consequences, uh, positive consequences, I think, in the end. Uh, so, Rafa, I think at this point, uh, what I'll do is I'll, I'll pass it on uh, to you. If you have any kind of final um, key messages or keywords you'd like to share uh, with the audience, and uh, and then we'll pretty much wrap it up at, the, at that point. Dorian, I really appreciate your time. I think that this is a great podcast, and much like all good things that have social impact, it's difficult to scale at first, but the implications and kind of the potential of it is super beneficial to society. So as pre-care scales, I hope that everything that you endeavor in scales as well. And that, you know, we were able to have this chat in a few months and kind of like look back at this journey and see what we've done and the right things and kind of like the impact that we're able to provide. So cheers, I appreciate your time and I look forward to our next chat. I mean, I would definitely like to uh, have a follow-up chat as well. I think that'd be pretty awesome. Um, for anybody watching too, so we'll put a link in the, the description, um, precare.ca is the, the place to go. Um, and then uh, we'll, we'll see if we can get some additional links and contact information uh, from Raphael uh, in case anybody wants to get in touch with the company directly. So thanks a lot, Raphael, and I wish you all the best. Yeah, thank you.